0: Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. That's where we will be today. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9. And if you were church family, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 20. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, this is a passage that I find to be very encouraging and refreshing today. If you were here last week, and for those of you who weren't, uh, I would remind you of what the text was that we read and studied last week. We read the, one, of the most, one of the more difficult passages in the New Testament, one that discusses apostasy, those who abandon the faith, discussion of those who seem as though they have obtained it and maybe even are in the church and yet ultimately have never obtained salvation it was a very severe, very stern warning that Paul, or not Paul, that the author of Hebrews, whoever he might be, uh, the Holy Spirit, we should more correctly say, gave to us last week in Hebrews 6, verses 1 through 8. And it was uh, a message that, as I said last week, always causes concern for, for me as a pastor, as a preacher, for really anyone who teaches that passage, uh, a concern that often can arise is that what the passage will unintentionally do is that in the life of a true believer will cause doubt and despair to arise. It seems the case that when certain believers hear a passage like the beginning of Hebrews chapter 6, what can arise in our hearts is a a sense of questioning of, well, well, what if I am the one being discussed here? What if it is that I have not actually obtained the gospel, that I have not made it? Oftentimes it is because we know our sin and know our struggle and we therefore are led to despair and doubt because of a warning passage like that. Oftentimes it leads us uh, to ask questions such as this. If you remember, if you are a child of the 90s perhaps, or maybe the 80s, or maybe you just like nostalgic things, you might remember a band called DC Talk who is no more, uh, but they were probably most well-known for a particular album, their most famous album called Jesus Freak. Uh, and the most popular song on that album was Jesus Freak, the song. It's probably the song that has uh, made them most well-known, most famous, though they had a lot of other great songs. In fact, it's, it's my opinion that the best song on the Jesus Freak album was actually the song that came right after Jesus Freak. It was a song called What If I Stumble. And when I When I think about our passage that we looked at last week and and what is potentially the result for Christians to, to question their salvation, it reminds me of that song and the question that is asked and posed in that song. The song poses the question, What if I stumble? The chorus says, What if I stumble? What if I fall? What if I trip and I make fools of us all? Will your love continue if my walk becomes a crawl? What if I stumble? What if I fall? I think most of us in here today who are believers can resonate with this prayer, can resonate with this sentiment, this cry of the heart. A question to God, what if I stumble? What if I screw up? It's a question we pose knowing our weakness, knowing how we stumble and how we fall and how so often what we call the Christian walk feels more like the Christian crawl. What we see in our passage today is a gracious response of the Holy Spirit to that very question. We see the graciousness of the Holy Spirit as he moves the author to write and to deliver for us today this very encouraging message, one that comes right after such a severe warning. Much like a parent who, after having given a stern warning to a child, often feels the need to comfort that child after that. If you've ever seen a child that does something very dangerous, if a child runs into a road and you go and you grab that child, or if they are acting dangerously near water, you you act in a very firm and stern way to take that child of yours out of love and you correct them very severely so that they can feel the gravity of the danger. But after that severe warning, is it not proper in that moment to then offer that child comfort, offer that child love, offer that child a warm embrace? That is the pastoral position that the author of Hebrews is moved to take here where after such a stern warning, he knows that these kinds of fears, these kinds of doubts will arise in the life of the believers that that are in the midst that he is writing to. And therefore, he offers to them a gracious comfort after this severe warning. The passage that we looked at last week was directed at a different category of people than what our passage this week is directed at. Though it is all written to the same church, to the same congregation, what is recognized is that among the wheat in this church, there is chaff that is growing. And our passage last week that we expounded upon was written to the chaff. It was written to those among the believers in the church who had not yet entered into the faith, who were not yet actual followers of Christ, but were trusting in something other than Christ Christ. Those who, though they had much knowledge of the gospel and had even tasted of the goodness of God, as our passage told us last week, were still on the edge, having not yet committed to Christ and trusting in Him for their salvation. These people who were addressed last week, those who had some sort of understanding, some sort of knowledge and yet lacked belief, lacked true trust in Christ, we're lacking something important. I heard one theologian, uh, one at one point, uh, I think his name was Philip Jensen. He talked about how he doesn't really like the word faith, as it is often translated in the Scripture. Oftentimes, when the Scripture translates the word faith, as it is regards to salvation, it was his opinion that is not always an accurate description of what the Bible is actually trying to portray. What uh, the concept that the Bible is actually trying to get across, and oftentimes this is because the word faith is confused with mere belief or av- even simple understanding. Instead, Philip Jensen proposes that the word trust is actually a more accurate description, a more correct word that we ought to use to describe what is being, what is being intended by the word faith in Scripture. Because there's a difference between trust and belief, right? And I would argue that this difference can be seen in various ways. I uh, was reminded of of a time whenever me and my family were on vacation in the Smoky Mountains, which is where you vacation when you live in this part of the world. And we found this awesome rope swing near the cabins that we were staying in. We had met up with some friends and we were... Uh, hanging out near our cabin. We found this awesome swing. It was a a rope stretched way up into this tree, tied off. And then at the bottom of the rope was just a block of wood with a hole drilled in it and a knot tied in the bottom, right? So that the wood would sit on that knot and you could swing. The crazy thing about this swing was, was that it was built on the side of a hill. So if you could imagine, you would swing one direction and you'd be inches from the ground. And then when you would swing in the opposite direction, you would be literally like 30 feet off the ground in no time. It was pretty scary, pretty scary swing. Didn't scare me though. I had complete trust that that swing would hold me. You know how I, had, how I know that I had complete trust? Because I hopped on the swing and I took off. Swung way up in the air. Meanwhile, my friends and the rest of my family were standing on the ground going, nope, there's no way. I believe that that swing can hold Denton. I believe that that swing could hold me i don't trust it you see there is a difference between those who stand on the ground looking at the swing believing that it will hold them and those who actually get on the swing and put their trust in the swing to hold them this could also be seen if you are a rock climber or have ever seen someone rock climb uh, with what's called an auto belay this is a a sort of uh, contraption that attaches you to the top and the rope attaches to your harness and you climb up to the top but instead of having someone at the bottom controlling your, uh, your descent and your safety, there is an automatic machine that when you fall, it catches you and it slowly lowers you back to the ground. It's an automatic belay. But the thing with these auto belays is that until you actually put all your weight on the belay, it won't pull, it won't take, it won't, uh, it won't contract and you will feel as though you're falling until you're not, until you actually put all your weight on it. Well, this causes a lot of people pr- trouble people who believe that that harness can hold them. And so they tie in and they climb to the top. But then once they get to the top of the wall and are told, let go, find that they don't actually have a lot of trust in that auto belay. Uh, And there have been occasions where people have actually had to be pushed off the wall in order to see that the belay will hold them. Very scary ordeal for a lot of people. We see then that there's a difference between belief and trust. Last week, the author of Hebrews was writing to those who had some kind of belief. They had accepted, they had understood the gospel enough that they were participating in the local church, even reaping some of the benefits that came through their participation. But who was not being addressed in last week's passage and now being addressed today is those who do not simply understand, do not have a simple belief or knowledge but are actually trusting in Christ. We are dealing today with a different category of people, those who are true believers trusting in Christ. And we see this in the very first verse of our text today. Verse 9 says, Though we speak in this way, here he's talking about what he has just said, this severe warning, he says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. The Holy Spirit here is saying, in your case, beloved, we know, we feel sure of better things. We feel sure of your salvation. The author here is, is speaking to believers. We know this, if for nothing else, because of the word beloved. You know, this word beloved is applied only and always to believers in scripture. Unbelievers in the church are never described as Beloved. Anytime the word beloved is used here, it is being written to refer to believers, to followers of Christ. So here the Holy Spirit says, though we have given this severe warning, in your case, believers, the the wheat, we're not talking to the chaff anymore, we're talking to the believers, those of you who are trusting in Christ, in your case, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation The author goes on to say in verse 10, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. The author here is pointing to why it is that he has confidence in their salvation. This is very similar to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter one when he's writing to the church in Thessalonica. He says, we give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers well, the author of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit, is saying here, I am so used to saying Paul. We don't preach from uh, from places other than Paul enough, apparently. Um, what the Holy Spirit is in, is saying to us here, he's saying the reason that I have confidence in your salvation is because I see the evidence. I see the work of the Holy Spirit in you. And this demonstrated in the power that has led you to serve, to work. Specifically, you have demonstrated your love for the name of God and serving the saints. The author points to their fruit as the evidence by which he has determined his confidence that they are saved, evidence of their love for the name of God. We need to be sure that when we say this that we do not make works and deeds the basis of our confidence. Our confidence can only be found in Christ, as our text would lead us to believe. So we as believers never look at our lives and go, am I producing enough good works to determine that I am saved? If you're doing that, you're putting your confidence in the wrong place. You're putting your confidence in yourself rather than in Christ Jesus and his righteousness. Works and deeds never ought to be the basis by which we judge ourselves according to God. And yet we know full well that the fruit produced in the life of a believer is oftentimes the marker that other people can look to and point as evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in believers. As John says in John, by this they will know that you are mine, how you love one another. James also tells us that faith without works is dead though we as believers do not trust in our good deeds and in our works for our hope and for our righteousness, we trust in Christ alone. We also know that we can look at our brothers and sisters around us and we can see the Holy Spirit at work in them and we can trust and know that they are secure in Christ Jesus. That is what the author here is doing to the church. He is saying, I have hope I have hope of better things. I am confident in better things, think concerning salvation for you because I have seen the work of the Holy Spirit among you. And then verses 11 and 12 go on to tell us what it is that the Holy Spirit desires for all believers. He says, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. What is the Holy Spirit's desire for all believers? That they would have the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope until the end. This statement that the author makes here in chapter 11, or verse 11 teaches us two important things. Things that we need to hear. Things that are good for us to know. And first of all, that is that built into this statement is an acknowledgement that true believers... Actual followers of Christ are still prone to struggle with doubt and with a lack of assurance. And the author would have us know that doubt and a lack of assurance does not exempt you from justification. You have not revoked your justification if you struggle to believe the truth that is revealed in it. Just as the man said in the Gospels, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We know that even true followers of Christ are prone to doubt, are prone to weakness, are prone to waver in their assurance. If you are a believer in here today, as most of us have, and you have struggled with assurance, you have struggled with doubt, know, brother, sister in Christ, that that has not exempted you from the righteousness of Christ. That your doubt has not mitigated your salvation, your justification before God, more so than anything else that you could do indeed nothing can separate us from the love of god in christ jesus not even our doubt the second encouragement that we can take from this statement is that assurance is available for believers you do not and indeed ought not stay in that place of doubt but fight against it fight against doubt 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 some might say grow towards the full assurance of hope until the end. This is the desire of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. Not that we should just accept doubt. We should never just shrug our shoulders and say, yeah, I struggle uh, to rest in Christ's finished work on the cross, to have assurance. I kind of live in doubt and am always sort of fearful at whether or not I am in Christ or not. But, you know, it is what it is. It's okay that's not the place the Holy Spirit would have us stay. That's, a, that's not only a terrible picture of the Christian life, but it is not the one that God has intended for us. He has intended for us to have assurance, to have hope, to have it to the fullest. You can be a Christian and doubt your salvation, but that is not God's desire for you to stay in. That is why he writes for us in this passage and in so many others to encourage us in our confidence, to encourage us in our hope. When John writes concerning the gospel in 1 John chapter 1, he says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. In 2 Timothy 1, 7, Paul says, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Even when we think of the fruit of the spirit, they attest to this, that the first three of the fruit of the spirit are what? Love, joy, and peace. These are the antidote to doubt. They are the opposite of doubt and what we are called to embrace and to celebrate and to live in. It is the desire of the Holy Spirit in this that we should not be sluggish as he, as he goes on to say, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. We might say imitators of those who through trust and patience inherit the promise. Those who not only know the gospel, but are relying on that alone and not in themselves. The Holy Spirit has expressed in our passage the desire that we should move on to assurance and confidence and to let go of doubt. But he does even more than just call us to let go of doubt. He does more than just call us to confidence. He goes on to give us reasons to be assured of our salvation. He goes on to give us the basis of our confidence in the following verses, where he says in verses 13 through 18, He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to obtain salvation other than to flee to Christ for refuge? This is at the heart of what it means to believe the gospel. It doesn't mean that you act a certain way. It doesn't mean that you have certain attributes. It doesn't mean that you have victory over specific sins necessarily. What it means is that you flee to Christ for refuge. And here in these verses, Abraham is given to us as the example to imitate, just as the Holy Spirit said in verse 12. And think Think about the promise of Abraham. Think about the story of Abraham, how God made a promise to Abraham. What was the promise God made? He said, I will bless you and I will make you the father of many nations. Your offspring will be more than the stars, more than the sand on the sea. Unable to be counted, the Lord declares to Abraham. And Abraham had much reason to doubt the Lord's promise, didn't he? In fact, he did doubt the Lord's promise. He had reason to doubt, namely, first and foremost, because right off the bat, what was the problem he ran into? His wife was old. Sarah, his wife, was 90 years old, was well past childbearing age. This is why when she heard the Lord say this, she laughed in her heart. She laughed and Abraham doubted. And yet, what do we see? We see that God demonstrated his faithfulness to his promise to Abraham so much so that even a dead womb was nothing to stop God and his promises. His promises could not be thwarted by anything, even the biological reality of a womb that was closed, of a 90-year-old woman. And the implications become apparent for us then. When we look to Abraham and we see God's faithfulness to his promise to Abraham, it ought to cause us hope, recognizing that God and his purposes, as our texts tell us, is unchanging and unchangeable. That the same God who was faithful to his promises to Abraham and to all those in the Old Testament is faithful to us today in his promise that he has made us in his son, Jesus Christ. We see the example of Abraham, how he trusted God's promise and God was faithful to his promise, and we see the text declare to us. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that is, us, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. The point of the author here is to direct our attention to the faithfulness of God and the fact that his faithfulness, as every other character and attribute of God, is unchanging. He is just as faithful today to his promises as he was then. Even though Abraham doubted and sinned and took matters into his own hands, as he slept with Hagar, Sarah's servant, in order to attempt to make the promise of God a reality, doubting, disbelieving that God was able to do it the way he said, and taking matters into his own hands was a demonstration of his doubt, of his lack of confidence. Did God then say, well, I'm I'm not going to be faithful to you anymore. You doubted. You didn't believe. You didn't have confidence. Where's your assurance, Abraham? No. In fact, even though Abraham doubted and sinned against God, God was still faithful to Abraham. Abraham is specifically used here, but we could consider a whole host of Old Testament examples to demonstrate the unshakable faithfulness of God to his people. We see it over and over again. We see it in Isaiah 49, verses 13 through 15. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Verse 14, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. That is so often the cry of our hearts, is it not? We cry with the psalmists. Lord, how long are you going to forget me? How long, O oh Lord, will you withhold your hand from me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a cry that has been heard throughout the history of redemption. But after this cry in verse 14, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me, comes this declaration in verse 15 of Isaiah 49. Can't a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. What an encouraging word that is. Isaiah is taking, uh, as he is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and the Lord is declaring here take the image of a nursing mother. And I would argue to you that there is no greater display of an intimate bond than of a mother and a baby as they are nursing. That a nursing mother is bonded to her child, to her infant, in a way that is is pretty well unmatched in all of our human experience. So that it would be almost foolish to say that a woman could forsake her nursing child and have no compassion on them. That's almost unthinkable. If you're a mother in here, you know. If you're a father in here, you know. And what, the, what Isaiah is saying here, what the Lord is declaring, is that that is more likely to happen than for the Lord to forget you. He says, even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. If a nursing mother is more likely to forsake her child than the Lord is to forsake us, then we have reason for confidence and we have reason for hope. What a picture of faithfulness this is. The author concludes in verses 19 through 20 and says this, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. These last two verses are beautiful and hope-filled, and as I was studying this text and I came to these last verses, I was, uh, I was encouraged, I was reminded of a song, a song that I've referenced in my preaching before and I've probably talked about a lot. If you have been around me, you've heard me talk about this song, and yet it's a song that has become a continual source of encouragement and, and nourishment to my soul. It's a song that was written by a man, a man named Edward Mote, and it was written in 1834, Most of you have heard the song, though not in its original form. Most of you have heard it in its modern version, but its original lyrics were a a little bit different and a lot better, if you ask me, as was his title. Today, this song is usually titled in psalm books and hymns, The Solid Rock. But the original title of the song was not The Solid Rock. It was actually The Immutable Basis of a Sinner's Hope. Just rolls right off the tongue, doesn't it? But that is a beautiful title, you have to admit. It's a title that, that begins already to display the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of Christ. I'm going to read for you the, the song, the verses of the song, along with the chorus at the end in its original version, because I think it is just a, a beautiful sentiment and one that can relate uh, to us. Edward Mote writes this, Nor earth nor hell my soul can move. I rest upon unchanging love. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Midst all the hell I feel within, on His completed work I lean. When darkness veils His lovely face, I rest upon unchanging grace. In every rough and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, and his blood supports me in the sinking flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. I trust his righteous character, his counsel, promise, and his power. His honor and his name's at stake to save me from the burning lake. When I shall launch in worlds unseen, oh, may I then be found in him, dressed in his righteousness alone. Faultless I stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. What a beautiful declaration of the immutable basis of the sinner's hope. Christ, our solid rock the song beautifully portrays these verses and what they declare to us that jesus christ is our sure and steady anchor as we sang previously the source of hope for believers because he has entered into the most holy place and serves as our high priest mediating for us this is the picture that is that is given for us in our verses and in the song when he says In every rough and stormy gale, my anchor holds, where? Within the veil. You see, for believers who are trusting in Christ, we can trace the rope, the chain of our anchor, and see that it goes directly into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place where Jesus serves as our anchor, mediating for us on our behalf. All throughout this passage, where the author is calling us to look, where is the author calling us to look for our confidence? Where is he encouraging us to look? He's calling us to look outside of ourselves and to look to Christ. He is our confidence. And only by looking to him will we find hope. By looking at him, there is hope to be found. No one who looks to Christ for their confidence is ever let down. No one who looks to him for their assurance is ever let down. This is the opposite of what the world calls us to do, isn't it? The world says to find confidence, to find strength, to find hope, look within. Look to yourself. Look to the strength within you, your inner strength. Well, that's a load of garbage. Nothing good is to be found. No hope, no encouragement is to be found within us. You know what we find when we look within? Oftentimes, when we look within for for encouragement, for confidence, for hope, all that we find is doubt and despair. Why? Because we know our sin. When we look within, we see the sin that still dwells so closely, even in believers. The logic of this text begins to become clear as we understand the passage. There is a logical argument being made here. A and B, if they are true, then C is true. If A and B, then C. If A... Christians are those who find refuge in Christ according to the promises of God, which is true. That is what it means to be a Christian, to trust in Christ. It is to be those who find refuge in him according to the promise of God. And B, God's character and purpose are unchanging, and Christ is a sure and steady anchor of the soul, which is true, is it not? That is what God has declared to us in his word. If A and B are true, then C must be true that Christians can have full assurance of our salvation because of the surety of the basis of our salvation, that being Christ Jesus, our sure and our steady anchor. Hope and confidence is ours. This is why Peter says in 1 Peter 1, through 3-5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We see also, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and take great hope in this short sentence, this short statement, but one packed full of confidence and hope. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus for whom is there no condemnation it's not those who pray X number of minutes per day it is not those who are really good at evangelism it is not those who have fewer sins to confess to their brothers and sisters in Christ no there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus church family if you are trusting in Christ Jesus today if He is the basis for your salvation, for your justification before God, then you have reason for hope. The question is, then why do we still doubt? If we know this, we hear this truth and we know it, and yet doubt still creeps in. Why is it? And while I don't claim to be able to expound on all of the possible ins and outs of the human condition and the source of every inkling of doubt and why it should arouse. It has been my experience that most often when doubts arise in a believer, it's not that these truths about Christ are unknown to them. That is not often why they have doubts. It's not that they don't know the truth. But rather, it's that these truths are drowned out by the knowledge of indwelling sin. That though we know the truth of Scripture, we look at our own hearts We see our sin. We know our shortcomings. We know how we just acted this week. We might know how we just acted this morning or last night. And we say, how could this be true? I am still so wicked. No one who has been redeemed looks like me. To all of you who struggle with this kind of doubt, I would tell you two things. First of all, the fact that your awareness of your own sin is so weighty That in and of itself is a product of the Holy Spirit at work within you. If you feel the weight of your sin today, praise God for that. There is a whole world out there that could care less about their sin, that could care less about their status before God, about what their sin means and who it is they have sinned against. They are ignorant to it. And those are people who have no reason for hope. But if you are here in this place today and the Lord has exposed to you the filthiness of your sin that is a thing to be praised that is a thing to praise God for for only those who have the holy spirit indwelling in them and opening their eyes to this reality see sin as what it is and it is dirty and it is filthy and it is ugly but then the second thing i would encourage you with is that christ was familiar with this kind of struggle this struggle between the spirit and the flesh This is no new thing to Christ. Even his own disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane demonstrated this struggle. As Jesus, having come back and found his disciples, were they praying? No. He found them asleep. And he said, come on, wake up. I want you to pray with me. Can you not just stay awake and pray with me as I have asked you to do? Pray for me. But Jesus, knowing the human condition, knowing these, his disciples, and the struggle that they were up against, says this, The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Let me encourage you today, Christian. Do not let the weakness of your flesh blind you to the sweetness of the gospel. The sweetness of the gospel is made ever more sweet the more we understand our guilt before God. The more we understand that we have sinned against a holy God, and then we look to Christ for our confidence and hope, the more amazing the gospel becomes. That even I, in my doubt, in my weakness, in my sin, have been chosen by God, adopted, and made new. And even now, I'm looking forward to an inheritance that is mine in him. He entered into the holy of holy place, our text says, as a forerunner. This anticipating what is to come for us, that we one day will stand before God, no longer struggling with sin, no longer struggling with doubt and weakness, but we will stand before God, perfected in Christ's righteousness, dressed in his righteousness alone. Do not let your anguish over your sin keep you from the assurance found in Christ. For indeed, we have a great high priest, as Hebrews 4 says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession and let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Brother or sister in Christ, if Jesus Christ is your advocate, then we now know that with him as our great high priest, we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace and receive all the grace and All the mercy that we need and it is found in Christ Jesus alone. Let's pray.